I'm Susan Branscom, and this is Leading She. Women have to work faster, smarter, harder. They really have to prove themselves if they're working in a male-dominated workplace, which most large law firms are now and most large corporations are. And that's not to be negative about it. It's just a fact of, of where we are and, and have been for some time. Trish Smithson was the first woman managing partner at a 70-attorney law firm and a courageous trailblazer. She initiated gender diversity discussions at her firm and became the first woman on the executive committee. She implemented a weekly partner meeting to enhance communication and improve culture through her strength in connecting people. Trish feels strongly that women need to promote themselves in the workplace and ask for what they want and deserve. Enjoy listening to Trish Smithson. I want to welcome Trish Smithson to Leading She today. I want to take a minute and introduce Trish. She's had a wonderful career. From 93 to 2012, she was an attorney with Thompson Hine, a large law firm which had 360 attorneys firm-wide, where she had a national practice of representing major companies as a corporate finance attorney. She was the first woman elected to the executive committee and the first woman to serve as managing partner of a large law firm in Cincinnati and I think Ohio, right? Yes, primarily Ohio. Trish chaired the firm-wide diversity and inclusion committee where she was the first recipient of the firm's diversity champion award for leadership in advancing women and minorities. So welcome, Trish. Thank you. Very nice to be here. I will add, too, that uh, Trish joined uh, after Thompson Hine. She joined American Red Cross as a CEO of the Cincinnati and Dayton region, which served 27 counties and over 3 million people. Uh, Trish has done a lot of uh, nonprofit work. Uh, we both served on the YWCA board here in Cincinnati. Uh, she serves now on the board of the Port Authority here in Cincinnati with Laura Brunner. And uh, anything else to add about your career? Well, just that I've enjoyed it. I'm also enjoying retirement. Uh, <laughs> but I really enjoyed the fact that I had two very different careers, one in the uh, corporate world as a, with a large corporate law firm and then in the nonprofit world with a wonderful organization, the American Red Cross. Right. And I want to get into that and talk about how, how they were different. You joined the firm Thompson Hine in 93 and you pushed for a diversity initiative within the firm. Tell me about that. Well, I did. I um, Just to give you a little background, I started um, practicing law part-time because I had two very young children. I went to law school when they were one and four, my two sons. And then I started practicing part-time when I graduated. And wonderful man who passed away shortly after that. And then I started practicing with my brother, who is David Mann, well-known politician in uh, Cincinnati. Yes. And then he was elected to Congress. And when he was elected to Congress, I started looking at other law firms. And I was very disappointed that he was going off on a different track because we had a nice small practice, but um, law firm. But I had a very uh, wonderful, growing, dynamic um, legal practice and talked to the large firms in town and was very interested in Thompson Hine because I felt they had a wonderful attitude toward women. And that turned out to be very true in my career. But after I'd been there about four or five years, uh, the other strong women in the firm were bringing to our, my attention and the, to the attention of management that there were no women in leadership roles. And so I was able to advance that cause. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and the way I did it, uh, there, the managing partner of the firm at that time, who was based in Cleveland, uh, would visit me because I had a practice that the firm was proud of. And he made what was then the courageous decision to make a change. And I was not promoting myself at the time. I really thought there were other women that might be better for the role. And I got the position, which was the first woman to serve on the firm's executive committee. And I do want to say that it was not unusual for large firms at that time. This is 1998, 1999, for large firms did not have representation of women in leadership roles. That's right. I remember I remember back then, 98 was when I started my firm, and I remember when you were made managing partner. Um, So you came in in 93, you pushed for the diversity initiative, and you were the first woman on the executive committee, and then in 98, when the managing partner position became available, you wanted it. And this is the managing partner in Cincinnati, where we had over 70 attorneys. And the did report to was in Cleveland. Yes. Right. And we had, Thompson then had seven offices, New York, Washington, Atlanta, Cincinnati, Dayton, and Cleveland. Is that seven? I may be forgetting something. Um, And so, yes, I really wanted to become the partner in charge, managing partner of the Cincinnati office. Mm -hmm. The executive committee role I enjoyed, but I didn't feel it was really uh, played to my strength. And it was removed from the people that I really cared about and wanted to be involved in because it was much more strategic. It was very high level. We would meet uh, once a month and we'd have conference calls once a week and we'd talk about all the firm-wide issues of running a 380 attorney law firm. Hmm. So I loved my job when I then uh, was given the assignment, which I sought uh, to become the managing partner in Cincinnati. Okay. Um, so you you called the fellow that put you on the executive committee, and you pushed for the diversity initiative, and you said he was courageous by agreeing to do that. Well, he was courageous because there weren't women in visible roles, and in order to um, put a woman in a visible role, and I don't think I got it just because it was a woman, but it was time for a woman. I really do think appearances matter and numbers matter, and mm-hmm. I've always felt that in my career. But that meant that a man who was on the executive committee had to come off. And so um, that, at the time, uh, created, uh, as any kind of a, a political situation like that, some um, turbulence in the firm, but nothing great. I never really felt a lot of negativity about it. I think the entire firm, which was primarily men uh, in the partnership roles, felt it was time for a woman, and hopefully they felt it was time for me to take on that role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had so many people on the executive committee to put a woman on there. A guy had to go. Had to right? go. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's right. Like, who's it going to be? Right. You know. They look but around. then you know it, it created such change, and and we can see this in any organization. Once that kind of um, change is made, it opens up a pathway for other women. And yes. now at Thompson Hine and before I left, and in all the big firms, you see women in leadership roles throughout the firms. So it's not just the managing partner roles or the local partner in charge. It's what we call practice group leaders. So mm-hmm. the women are now in charge of um, corporate law or uh, immigration law Mm -hmm. or human resources, whatever Mm -hmm. the practice group is. Mm -hmm. So the managing partner position came open and you said you wanted it. And so what did you say? How did you go about getting it? 
I just raised my hand. <laughs> I said and there was a, a change needed to be made, uh, and the the role that was uh, at that time, which happens in any firm after someone's been there nine or ten years in a position, it's time for um, fresh uh, leadership. And I said, this is a role that I really want. And because I had a seat at the table and I was in the room where it happens, uh, I was fortunate enough to get that position. That's right. Lesson there is uh, raise your hand. Raise when, your hand when you want, you want something. It? That's Don't right. wait to be mm-hmm. asked. Yes. Did you have situations? So you're you're an managing partner. You're on the executive committee, and it's a seventy attorney firm. So you're no, it's a three hundred and eighty attorney firm, and the Cincinnati, Cincinnati office was, had seventy plus attorneys. Yes, so uh-huh. a large firm, but Cincinnati had seventy. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Um, did you have situations where your authority as managing partner was questioned and? How did you handle it? I don't feel that there were a lot of situations where my authority was questioned because I was a woman. I think that's what you were asking about. Yeah, gender first, but then just if you were a man or a woman was your authority Well, I think certainly anytime you're in a leadership role, some of your decisions are going to be questioned. And you always Mm -hmm. have to be thinking about that and taking into account um, all the different points of view. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel at that time, either on the executive committee or uh, as the managing partner in Cincinnati, that my my authority was challenged because I was a woman. Okay. I think at that point, I'd really proven myself, particularly because of the practice that I'd been able to develop. I, I had a very strong practice, and that created respect within the mm-hmm. firm. So that went mm-hmm. a long way. Yeah. One of the changes you made there we were talking about is that you started having uh, weekly lunches. Yes. Some of the simple things that seem so simple in retrospect make a big difference. But um, we started having weekly partner lunches um, right there in the middle of the workday. And we had a partner who had retired who was a wonderful chef. And I said to him, "What? how would you like to start catering our partner lunches? And he did that, and truly because of this amazing food that he would bring in, the freshest, most delicious food in the middle of the day, it wasn't pizza, it wasn't turkey sandwiches, it was wonderful fresh fish and lots of fresh vegetables and wonderful salads. We had a tremendous turnout, and I really used that opportunity to try to talk to the partners and make sure they were talking to each other and that we all knew what each other, what we were doing Mm -hmm. about our practices and a little bit about our personal lives. Mm -hmm. And so it created a great camaraderie and also Mm -hmm. an understanding of what the challenges and opportunities were in Mm -hmm. in each of our practices. Yeah. So you really brought in your own touch by saying, we're going to partner meetings now. We're going to bring in the guy that was here who's now a chef and makes great food, which is wonderful. But really, the touch you brought is getting everyone together, talking developing a bond, a culture among the partners. Right. And I, I feel like that's uh, been, I'm not trying to brag about my skills, but one of the things that I do think I've been pretty good at is, is gabbing with people and bringing them out and talking to mm-hmm. them and having a genuine interest in them and their lives and remembering uh, what they told me the last time I saw them. I think that's very important to really take a personal interest in It makes a difference that with you're people. With. And yes. I, I use that too with people in the office and then with customers as well, clients. Absolutely. Tell me about uh, your work with the American Red Cross. Um, tell me about the stats, 27 counties and so forth, and how the experience was different than managing partner. You had different stakeholders. You had a lot of volunteers with the American Red Cross. Very, You're, you're heading the 
both companies, but very different expectations and goals. So I served as um, the partner in charge in Cincinnati for about 10 years. And again, the leadership change, it was time for leadership change. And I had stepped down recently. I still had my practice, had a national practice in the corporate finance area, uh, which was going very strong. But I had been asked to join the board of the Red Cross. And I've been on the board about six months. And the then CEO a very strong woman, uh, Sarah Peller, announced her resignation or her retirement, not her resignation. And I was very surprised that she was uh, going to retire at that time. And I watched the, um, listened to the the conversations about the selection process, and I saw a national search get underway. And I started to think, you know, that might be a really interesting way to conclude. That was definitely going to be my last career. So I threw my hat in the ring. And after a round of interviews, I was selected. And I love the Red Cross. It's a wonderful organization. And it is very different to work in a nonprofit versus working in a corporate setting. Yeah, it's a really neat position. I remember when you took that position. And uh, another thing that you put your touch on, you brought in a program where uh, uh, the, the smoke detector program. Well, that was really fun. Um, So the Red Cross is known for responding to disasters. We help people after tornadoes or hurricanes or floods. And our volunteers here in the greater Cincinnati Dayton area would go all over the country to help people. Mm -hmm. But what I don't think many people know is the Red Cross also goes to help victims of house fires every night. And Mm -hmm. in our region at the time, our volunteers would respond to two to three house fires a day, which is mm. astonishing. And the fire department goes and puts out the fire, but then the people are standing on the curb wondering where they're going to go next. And our volunteers would show up anytime, night or day, and make sure they had housing and money for food and help them with those next steps of what they needed to do to start to mm-hmm. recover. So as part of that um not initiative, that had been going on a long time, the Red Cross, the American Red Cross across the country, decided to install free smoke alarms to try to avoid the fires occurring, help people so that they didn't incur that um, Mm -hmm. disaster in their lives. And we had a goal that first year of 5,000, install 5,000. Now, we go into homes and install the smoke alarms. We just don't hand them out. We're going to make sure they're installed, and we do some training around them and fire safety mm -hmm. and how to escape from a fire. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of behind in our goal, and I was having a meeting with my executive team, and we only had about three months in the year left, and we wanted to install 5,000. And I think we'd only installed a couple thousand at that time. And I said, well, I think we should have an event, and we're going to install 1,000 alarms in one day. And we're going to make it like the Flying Pig Marathon. Of course, nothing can match the Flying Pig Marathon. But that was our model. We're going to have mm-hmm. a wonderful event. And fortunately, I had a um, member, a board member who worked at the then- Horseshoe Casino, now Jack, and they were wonderfully supportive. All our board members were, but the uh, casino gave us the lawn. They gave us free food. We had 300 volunteers that showed up. We had another company that gave us free buses and bus drivers and drove our volunteers all over the city, and we installed a 1,000 smoke alarms in one day. 
Wow. It was so much fun. And we raised a lot of money around it. We had um, the politicians showed up. Of course, I've got an in with one of them. So my brother better show up when I ask him to. (laughs) Uh, But we had other politicians and we had TV personalities and it was just really fun. Um, So then what happened is the National Red Cross um, understood what we had done and what a, a great thing it was. So now they have a national model. So throughout the country, Every region, there are about 30 regions, Red Cross regions in Mm -hmm. the country, over a two to three week period installs 100,000 alarms. Mm -hmm. And so that's fun that I was able to make that mark and leave that. Oh, that's that's great. Well, tell me about where you grew up, your mom and dad, uh, you know, what they did for a living and uh, siblings. I grew up in northern Kentucky. I mm-hmm. uh, moved there when I was two. My parents, of course. My dad uh, was an executive named Henry Mann, and he was also very active in the community. He was on many boards. He was the mayor of Lakeside Park. In fact, at one time when my brother was the mayor of Cincinnati, my dad was the mayor of Lakeside Park, which is just wow. kind of funny mm-hmm. uh, and fun. And um, so he's a wonderful model, very hardworking, and my mom also. My dad uh, passed away at age 95. My mother's still living. She's going to be 103 in October. Oh, my. So that's quite amazing. And I just have the one brother, David, mm-hmm. and uh, wonderful husband, Walter Smithson, who's head of a nonprofit mental health agency in town called Central Clinic. And together we have five children. Wonderful. You said your mother and your father, you talked about your father being model for you, that they were both role models for you in different ways. Absolutely. My dad was such a role model in how much he cared about the community and how active he was, as I said, on many boards. And I think he always was the model that if you're going to volunteer and if you're going to be on a board, then you don't just show up, you really make a difference and you take on leadership roles in that organization. My mother was such a model. It's just a beautiful, dignified, lovely woman. She was um, not a career woman um, and a little surprised when I decided to become one. And I couldn't have done it without my parents, actually. They were always Mm. so supportive of everything I did. Yeah, that's wonderful. And one thing you said to me, and I think this may be maybe coming from the role model your mom was, you said that at times we saw women uh, with a modified male look, and you said, you don't have to be a man, be a lady, you can be successful. Yes, my mother's uh, epitome of it, even now at at her age, which is not easy to be a 102 and a half, uh, she's just a very gracious and warm and beautiful, dignified Mm. woman. And I've always felt that um, it is important to to be true to yourself, I mean, mm-hmm. but my own personal style is I was proud of being a woman in my femininity and dressed that way and um, not tried to be one of the guys. Yeah. And there was a time in our history in the 80s when it was like just dressed like a man only with woman's clothing. It's almost like men's clothing, but don't vary in color. 
wear the tie, which is sort of like a little bow tie, but it, like their tie. And I think so it wasn't there a book called Dress for Success Dress for or Success, something? Yes. John Malloy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he talks about that, mm-hmm. that uh, you can show up in a purple suit, and uh, but but you're not going to be taken seriously. He was convinced of it, and he kept bringing science up to show it. I actually so. think there's some truth to that. I think Probably the key is. is you've got to be professional, and what's the professional look changes over time. It has. But I don't think you can just, it depends on what environment you're in. But if you are in a corporate world, you've got to have a professional corporate look. That's right. Nonprofit world is a little more relaxed, but Mm -hmm. I still think it's very important to have a professional look. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that old saying, dress uh, for the job that you want to have. That's right. And I think there's some truth to that. Right. I write a blog uh, for leadingshe.com, and one of the one of the blogs is about dress, uh-huh. and it's changed a lot. Yes, yes. You know, what the, what was expected 15 years ago, 25 years ago, is very different than it is now. So, But you still have to be careful. That, yes. Uh, the people at the top remember the way it was 15, 25 years ago, and they expect you to dress professionally, and sleeveless isn't really right, maybe open-toed shoes. I'm pretty <laughs> conservative when it comes to, to dress, so... Um, One of the things she said, uh, which I thought was interesting, we've often heard this uh, to women and men, fake it until you make it, and you don't believe in that. Well, I I don't believe in that. Of course, I think what fake it until you make it means is always show confidence in what you're doing. But I also, I feel like you've got to make it. And I've always felt, and I've this has been some of the advice I've given to people in the workplace, and particularly women. I think women have to work faster, smarter, harder. They really have to prove themselves if they're working in a male-dominated workplace, which most large law firms are now and most large corporations are. And that's not um, to be negative about it. It's just a fact of of where we are and and have been for some time. but I, I, you can't show up unprepared. You have to do the real work, and I think that's for a man or a woman. You're gonna, people are gonna be able to see through you. Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, in terms of um, women in the workplace, the Red Cross was a very different place. You still had to do the work, very hard work, and I think that's one of the things about a nonprofit. People don't understand they work just as hard, if not yes, harder, they do. and they work harder with much fewer resources. fewer resources. It was amazing to see how dedicated and how <laughs> scarce the resources were comparatively. But what I was going to say is there were many more women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Of course, Claire Barton uh, founded the American Red Cross, and uh, there has been a long tradition of strong women leaders in the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things you said about being assertive was that when you first took the managing position, managing partner position at Cincinnati Thompson Hine uh, were, was that you wished you had been a little more assertive. Well, that actually goes back to when I joined the executive committee. Okay. Because again, um, the the history of that was I had not really sought out that role and I was asked to take it at the time. And um, I was very honored uh, to do that. But I think that when I walked into that room uh, with seven men, and I was the only woman, I didn't have that confidence that I did later, I, mm-hmm. I developed. So I think uh, I think I told you the story. 
of um, when I then took the Cincinnati role and left, a woman followed me, which I was very pleased about, and it was someone that I'd had a close relationship with. And I told her, now, when you go in that room, make sure you take a seat right next to the firm-wide managing partner, Mm -hmm. which is something I had not done. I felt like I had kind of taken the seat that was the farthest away, newcomer, I'll just kind of come in and, and not rock the boat. Um, And I wouldn't have rocked the boat anyway, but I think that I could have shown a little more confidence. Although, thinking back about it, probably at that time, it was the right approach because we were all getting used to the new rules and the new person in the room and and the the dynamic that was going to occur Mm -hmm. from that. So it's just that for the next person that followed me, I think that uh, That she could have taken on a little different... uh, Yeah. And Really, it is symbolic of taking a seat at the table. Yes. Mm -hmm. And even more so, it's symbolic of uh, you sit right next to him. Yes. He's coming in. Sit next to power. He's number one. (laughs) You're number two. Right. You need to sit together, not you sitting on the other side of the... Right. There's symbolism there. Yes. It it, it sends a message. Yes, it does. And if you don't do it on the first day, you're not going to be able to do it. Right. Six months later, because everybody's got yeah. their seats and they're right. going to stay right there. And don't be afraid to take a seat at the table. I mean, no. you don't have to give up your seat for anyone. You don't have to sit along the wall, right? Right. But so. I don't think uh, once I was at the table, I always felt that my uh, opinions were respected. Mm-hmm. So it was more symbolic, I think, than um, having real meaning in terms of uh, how I was respected. Mm-hmm. You have a great story about uh, when you were managing partner. Uh, there were two partners, a man and a woman, about the same same stage of their careers, and one had made partner and the other hadn't, although um, it, it sounded like they were of pretty equal experience and they'd been on the partner track, but one one was made partner and one wasn't. Tell me about that. Well, this is, um, we talked a little bit about this, and this is the whole idea of women feeling that confidence to promote themselves in the workplace. And I think sometimes we don't do as good a job of that as we should. So uh, I had an experience where there was, you said, there was a man and a woman and they were associates. They were senior associates. And in large law firms, usually associates become partners at around the seventh or eighth year that Mm -hmm. they've been with the firm if they have a good, strong track record. And these were two top performers. They were both doing great. And I think they were maybe at their sixth year. But the young man um, would drop into my office from time to time and tell me about the good work that he was doing. And he, was, he wasn't bragging. He really was doing good work. He was making a tremendous contribution to the firm, and he wanted me to know about that. And he also, uh, as we got close to the end of the year, let me know that he really wanted to be considered for partnership that year even though it was a year earlier than the standard time that his class would have been considered. And so when we made the partnership decision, he was admitted to the partnership. Then (laughs) soon after that, the young woman, who was very qualified, came into my office and said, what happened? How did he make partner and I didn't make partner? And I mean, my answer was, you didn't 
you didn't tell me. You didn't tell me that you wanted it. You didn't tell me what you were doing. You just had missed that one thing, which is you've got to promote yourself. And that's not exactly what I told her, but it made such a difference. And because people in positions of authority, the bosses, can't know what everyone is doing. So I always very much appreciated if people would let me know what they were doing, not if they let me know because they had sharp elbows and they were trying to... Um, um, put down somebody else. But mm-hmm. if that was just a matter of fact and keeping me informed, I was very appreciative of that. So it was a great lesson for her as she made partner the next year. She's a sensational partner, and she never had any trouble for asking, <laughs> trouble asking for, what she wanted for after anything that. after that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a tendency among women to uh, expect people to see all the great work they're they're doing, and not s- remind bosses, Absolutely. remind people, look what I've done, and I want you to know that I am ready to be made partner, and yes. I expect it. Right. Uh, rather than waiting to at waiting to get anointed as a partner or get that. Go in and ask for it like he did. Absolutely. We all have yeah. to do that. And, and if you think you're, need, you're entitled to a raise, you need to go ask for the raise. And, That's right. But you also have to have the right story. You can't, you can't fake it till you make it. You've got to have the, the, have the goods. goods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great story about, you know, hey, take initiative. And you don't believe women always toot their own horns enough. No, I don't. I also think there's a right way to do it. I mean, you have to become politically savvy in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And that means um, a lot of things. One is you know how to promote yourself, and you definitely should promote yourself, but not to the detriment of anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's not because you're, as I said, trying to put someone else down. It's about you and what your real accomplishments are. Mm -hmm. And you want to uh, really understand kind of that secret handshake that's going on in the office. Mm -hmm. You've got to educate yourself on that emotional intelligence. And if you don't know it, you don't have it, then go f- study it and, mm-hmm. and understand it. Learn what that means. Right. Yeah, great advice. Uh, you have another good gender story about a big deal you were working on in corporate finance where you flew to New York City and you walked into a conference room. Tell us what happened there. Well, I think my story is probably very similar to a lot of women from my era who weren't um, used, were not used to being seen in those kinds of settings. And so I did fly to New York for a large transaction, and I did big transactions, 100 million, 500 million, billion dollar transactions. And we had had conference calls, so I'd been on the phone with these attorneys. And so I'd been there 30 minutes or so, and there were probably 15, 18 people in this room. And I finally went up to the attorney for the other side, and I said, well, when are we going to get started? And he said, well, we're just waiting for, and the, the name of my client, or the ex, client X's attorney to arrive. And I said, well, I, <laughs> client X's attorney is right here. I've been here for 30 <laughs> minutes. So maybe I didn't go in, uh, wasn't assertive enough in letting them know that who I was and that I was there. But yeah. the transaction went great. That's all that matters. And that the yeah, it went well. client was But happy. they didn't, they didn't think that since you were a woman, that you were the attorney that right. you were looking for. They did not think I was the, the one that was going to run the deal. Right. Yeah. This was interesting to me that I learned about you, that um, you would read the sports page every morning before you went to the oh, office. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I know that some people, actually uh, a young woman that I, I, I know that uh, complained to me about men are 
interested in sports. They, they're interested in sports. They want to talk sports. And she doesn't like sports. And this isn't even in the workplace. This is a dating situation. And I really felt in the workplace that if that's what people in the workplace were talking about, I wanted to know what they were talking about. And so I would read the sports page every morning just so I knew how the Reds were doing or I knew how the Bengals were doing or I knew who was in the World Series and what the scores were because otherwise I was closed out of the conversation. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much – it was just trying to be – understand what was going on. It's the same with the um, financial page. You know, I didn't view it any differently. It was a matter of being informed. Informed, yes. Very important. You talk about being prepared, and I'm, I'm a big believer in being prepared, and not everybody does it. You know, I found women, men, they don't always prepare to go into a meeting. Uh, I prepared for this podcast. I do, you know, research, and I decide, you know, what how I want to ask the questions and what I want to ask and so forth. So going into a meeting, uh, just being prepared, which helps give confidence, gives you some calm around knowing that you're ready to talk about it, knowing the goal you want to have. But talk about preparing for things. Well, I just don't think that anything replaces it. I mean, you just have to. You have to have the depth. You cannot be wide and an inch deep. You have to really have the depth, depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, So I I do that today if Mm -hmm. I'm going into a meeting. It's so easy to do research today about people and about topics. And so I uh, try to make sure that that I'm informed. And I, Mm -hmm. I just don't think anything replaces it. It doesn't. I see, though, if we're talking gender, I've seen a lot of men wing it and get away with it. And they may not know something, but they seem to brush it off, like I'll find out later, or does anybody else know that? And women sometimes will actually, actually almost over-prepare, you know, and <laughs> yeah. just afraid that they're, you know, going to make a mistake or say something wrong, so they over-prepare. And there's something in the middle. There is something in the middle. I'm not sure I think you can be over-prepared. I think it's more how you present yourself and how you present the information that you have. Mm-hmm. So um, that's part of the the diplomacy that, that you learn over time. Yes, you do learn over time. You don't always know it when you're young. Right. What's the best advice you feel like you've been given or some of the best advice? We talk about preparedness. What what else would you well, say? Well, speaking about being prepared, I would say number one uh, is do your homework. And I think uh, I learned that first from a wonderful seventh grade teacher who really taught me how to study. And mm. from that point on, I, I was always a very good student, which, again, I think that's uh, very important. If you want to have a strong career, you have to be able to show that you had that strength and and attainment early on. Mm -hmm. Um, But the second uh, piece of advice I got much later in life uh, is lift as you climb. And I got that from a tremendous uh, leader here in town, Charlene Ventura, who was the CEO CEO of the YWCA and in Cincinnati. All the strong women have been on the YWCA board, including you, Susan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she really taught me a lot about the fact that we really needed to do more in terms of, of helping other women and uh, what that meant in terms of recognition of women in mm-hmm. the community, either big recognition or just one, uh, one-to-one mentoring. Mm-hmm. She did. Uh, I served on the board with her for years and loved her. And we always said, you never say no to Charlene. Yeah, right. She's, Can you do this committee? Can you do that? Yes, Charlene, I'll do it. You know, she's very much uh, behind women and behind race um, 
as far as an initiative with the YWCA. And she started the Career Women Luncheon back in the 80s. Absolutely. And now it's the biggest luncheon yeah, in know. the city. And uh, now we, we have don't... it this year because of the right, virus. But, right. uh, yeah, it's a huge lunch. But you're so right about not being able to say no to Charlene. So I became her board chair, which mm-hmm. I loved. And then when uh, she wanted to renovate the historic downtown building, uh, she asked me to help co-chair the capital campaign. Okay. And we raised almost $7 million. But I had two wonderful co-chairs, Francie Pepper and yes. Marion Spencer. So those are two uh, powerhouses. Right. And then I also helped with uh, fundraising for the battered women's shelter okay. uh, years ago. And and um, so those were wonderful experiences for me mm-hmm. to be able to talk about the YWCA and what it does in this community and mm-hmm. how important it is for the community to support the Y and support right. women. Yeah. I chaired the uh, luncheon one year. And uh-huh. then she kept putting me on these fundraising things right. because I was I was pretty good at that. And not everybody <laughs> likes to do that work. But uh, um, Oh, yeah. She's a tremendous leader. Yes, she is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, one of the questions I had for you, um, what do you think, uh, as you see young women, we're both at that later stage of our, I don't want to say lives, because I think we've got a long way to go, but I mean, just at the end of, I'm at the end of my career, and what do you think, what you see young women coming into the, um, into the workplace, what kind of advice would you give young women today? Well, I think some of the things that we've touched on, um, but I, I really believe in the lean in. I think you really need to uh, lean in. When you're asked to do something, step up, take on the hard roles, raise your hand, uh, take on those assignments. And what we've talked about, do, do the very best. Don't fake mm-hmm. it. Really um, make sure that you're providing the very the best product that you can. And mm-hmm. nothing, nothing overcomes or, or exceeds excellent service and excellent product. I felt that was true when I was an attorney at a law firm, and I think that's true when I was uh, with a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. You have to constantly provide the very best product, whether it's legal services or it's volunteer services mm-hmm. that the organization um, is supposed to be delivering. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, you have two biological sons, right? What are they doing now? I have one in California. He has a three-year-old, and so I don't get to see him much. And uh, then I have a son here in Cincinnati with a daughter that I get to see a lot, 10-year-old. So they're both uh, following different fields. And then I have three stepchildren, uh, one in town and two out of town. So after 34 years of marriage, we consider them all our children mm-hmm. and uh, lots of grandchildren, 11 grandchildren. So it's a wonderful big family that uh, they're a little too spread out. I wish we could get together yeah. a little more. Well, you've had a wonderful career. Uh, what are you doing now in retirement? I am so busy and I'm loving retirement. I was always on a lot of, uh, did a lot of volunteer work. And so, as you mentioned, I'm on the Port Authority Board and I'm also involved in uh, about three, four other boards um, on the Rotary Foundation board. I just am joining Redwood School in Northern Kentucky, which is a wonderful organization all about delivering um, services to severely disabled children and Mm. adults. And I'm very excited about joining that board. Mm. And um, been involved with Speaking to Women's Health and um, the successor Building Healthy Lives or Clever Crisis. So just a number of things. And I'm really enjoying my time. I play, take bridge lessons and uh, 
just get up every day and enjoy life. That's fantastic. Thanks for joining me, Trish. This has been really great. Thank you, Susan. Really fun to be here. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Follow us on Instagram at Leading She. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have many great ideas for women leaders.